Quantlayer is a software consultancy based in Brooklyn, New York. All opinions expressed by podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Quantlayer. The information presented should not be construed as investment advice. Guests may maintain positions in assets mentioned in the podcast. Vikram here from Quantlayer, and thanks for listening to our 16th podcast. On this episode, Faison and I do a victory lap for calling out the Zafe exchange hack over two months ago. We also do a deep dive into IPFS, what it is, what problem it solves, how it works, and how Cloudflare is getting involved in this space. We finally look at some alerts that came through our dashboard. If you like this podcast, please hit subscribe and rate and review us on iTunes. It would help us out a lot. Thanks and enjoy. Hey everyone, you got Quantlayer here, Vikram speaking. I'm joined by Fizan, also known as the Wizard. Hey Fizan. Hey, how's it going? Good. So I think we got to do a victory lap for something we called out about two months ago on our podcast. I think it was episode five, actually. So the podcast title was Crypto Teams Need to Communicate Better. And what we did was we went through a bunch of the data issues that we see across crypto exchanges. And one of these data issues was, was with Zafe, which is one of these crypto exchanges based in Japan. So they just announced that they got hacked and lost about 6,000 Bitcoin as a result. A little bit of Bitcoin Cash and Monocoin, which is this kind of funny, weird Japanese-focused cryptocurrency. But they lost them because of the hack. And the issue that we had been seeing with them was they kept adding fake data to their production API. So that's just really bad data hygiene. So imagine logging into your Ameritrade account and seeing the ability to buy tickers of non-existing companies so you can buy non-existing stock. It's just really bad. That's something that you need, that you'd want to be doing in a staging environment. You don't want to put test data in production. It's just ridiculous. So we'll link to the podcast transcript for that episode in the show notes. But what we basically thought was if they're doing this with production data, there are probably other fundamental tech issues at Zafe, right? Right. So this is basically what happened. And this is from a Coindesk article, which I'll read here. So the license exchange called Zafe is operated by the Tech Bureau. It said on Thursday that the exchange first noticed an unusual outflow of funds on the platform around 1700 Japan time on September 14th, after which the company suspended asset deposit and withdrawal services. Tech Bureau explained that after further investigation, it discovered that hackers with unauthorized access to the exchange's hot wallets had stolen roughly 60 million in Bitcoin, Bitcoin Cash, and Monocoin. That being said, the exact amount of Bitcoin Cash stolen remains unknown. The last bit's kind of funny too. They actually don't know how much they lost. So that's basically what happened. They lost Bitcoin, Bitcoin Cash, and Monocoin as a result of the hack. And then if you go into Zafe's actual press release, and it's in Japanese, and I don't know Japanese, I'm just trusting Google Translate here. But there are some tech-focused issues that they detailed, and those are pretty interesting. So the first one, since September 14th, some services such as deposit and withdrawal of virtual currency are not in operation at our service. We're causing serious inconvenience to our customers. As a result of our survey, it turned out that some of the deposits and withdrawal hot wallets were hacked by unauthorized access from the outside and part of the virtual currency managed by us was illegally discharged to the outside. 
So I think that's an interesting fact here that the funds were in a hot wallet, not cold storage. Yeah. And, you know, that's one of those things where in complete isolation, that's not necessarily doesn't give anything away. It's obviously way better that they had a hot wallet hacked than funds stolen out of cold storage. But given that there were indications that they're like, they're pretty careless with some of their technological like management, it's definitely something to be wary of. Yeah, it's interesting to like consider what could have happened. I mean, we don't know, right? It was a hot wallet. That means that it can be accessed from likely from a web address, right? So they could have had like administration details and a notepad or like an Evernote. I mean, who knows? But basically like someone had access to the login that shouldn't have or someone had access that should have and just ran away with the money. But it's a pretty big problem. So the second thing that comes up in the press release, the reason for not being able to determine the damage quantity at the moment is that the server is not restarted until secure confirmation of safety is ensured in order to prevent secondary damage. As soon as the quantity of the virtual currency is determined, we will report it promptly. I mean, I don't know. What do you think about this? Yeah, so this one is uh, much more alarming. So the first item, okay, you had a hot wallet hacked. As you mentioned, potentially some procedural issues to your security and how you're managing your keys or passwords or some sort of information management issue. The second one is more alarming because it sounds to me that they cannot see what's going on while the server, like their system is down, like by auditing their logs, history of transactions, anything like that. And then they're scared that if they restart it, that basically the hack will continue so they don't have a way of like restarting it into a safe environment. So this is alarming because it just means that they're like pushing to production without any foresight from like a DevOps perspective on like what happens if we have a disaster. And you don't want like a hot wallet to get hacked, but it does happen. And so you should have a better plan in place. Right. And I think we'll touch on that point about disaster recovery in a bit, but I imagine that this should be on top of the mind of crypto exchanges, especially on the hacking side. So the third part that's mentioned, okay. Currently we are checking and strengthening security, rebuilding the server, et cetera. I like the et cetera. In order to restart the system of depositing slash withdrawing virtual currency, we are committed to restoration as soon as possible. So please wait for a while. (laughs) That's just a funny turn of phrase. Yeah. Same thing as I mentioned before, this I think reaffirms my initial suspicion that the way that they set things up, they can't safely restart the system without the hack continuing. And with the system down, they're not able to see see what happened. Again, we don't know what happened for sure, but this is almost always a case of having like bad logs and just not being able to audit like past transactions or history of how your system is being used. It's like important in production in general and like really important when you're dealing with financial transactions. The fact that you need to somehow have the system running to go back and build a history of transactions is alarming because you should have all the like logs for all of that anyway. And this is not something that's, you know, crypto specific. You see it all the time where the way things are built and deployed in like locally or in in test environments are how they get deployed to production. But the reality is like there's a lot of things you can do in terms of deleting data, reseeding data, manipulating data that you can't do in production. And so it's very easy to paint yourself into a corner. And this sounds like what they've done here. Yeah. And we have seen, as you said, we've seen this stuff, right? Like you're working on an older application, maybe 
data has not been configured as it should have, you want to add a new feature that requires like some major change on the data side. Yeah. I mean, the most straightforward example that often comes up is you have an old system, you're building a new system, you need to bring all of the old users into the new one. Let's say you have 100,000 users and you built the whole thing without a plan for how you're going to do that. And you see sometimes situations where you have to basically communicate to all of your users the steps to go into the new system and get there correctly, which is a not a great flow. And, you know, that's not the exact same thing as this, but it is a scenario of like painting yourself into a corner where with the correct planning, you can make these transitions much more seamless or also a lot safer in terms of like if you do lose data or your system goes down, like you don't lose all your users or they don't end up having to like reset all their passwords or something like that. Yep. So I guess one thing worth talking about is I think a lot of people listening are probably interested in this stuff just broadly. If we're just talking about production applications overall. Yeah. And of course, this is going to vary from application to application. Like some requirements will be a lot lower, some will be a lot higher, but I imagine the bar should be a lot higher when it involves people's money. And something, your production application at a crypto exchange should be the bar for that, for that production application should be a lot higher than say like a to-do app or something like that. So the, off the top of my head, there's probably like a handful of things that are super important. And Fizan, let me know what you think about this. I'm sure you have a few other thoughts as to what else should be important. But five things came to mind. One, a staging environment that you want to test new features and updates on. And they're tested before release. Logging. And I would add to logging, like not just logging stuff, but making sure that you can actually ask questions of your logs that are going to be important to you. So like, it's not helpful to just log stuff and then, oh, your question is like, what transactions happened in these last seven days and you can't actually get that information. Right. That is a great point. So I, I also wonder on the logging side, though, what are they doing for logging for like unauthorized access if someone is trying to access the hot wallet or do they track IPs and things like that? So logging can yeah, mean a exactly. lot of things. Especially if you're dealing with, with people's money or your own employees that have access to your hot wallet, you essentially want to audit like usage. So any actions taken within the app by like an admin that has access to anything sensitive should probably just be auditable. Yep. And then as far as logging goes, so I know we've used paper trail, right? Yeah, that's that's one service where we can just send all of our logs to. That's one service for server logs. I'm not sure if they do other type of logging, but as far as server logs go, they have been I mean, you a can send anything over one. there. It yep. just depends what you want to do. Yep. And then bug tracking slash Notification. So when your production application hits a bug, you want to know when that happens. So a prior podcast, we talk about bug snag for a bit. So you can listen to that in terms of what they offer. But that's a great tool for being able to capture when a bug hits your platform. And the time you can get a timestamp for it. And if you have logging set up, you can use the timestamp to go look at the logs. And it just helps with this flow a lot better. And then security, of course, and this is broad. And I know that, but in terms of did Zafe have any kind of security audit in place happen uh, beforehand? You know, having funds transferred out of a hot wallet sounds like some pretty sloppy admin credentials being shared or some kind of inside job. Yeah. And I would say like security into two categories where, you know, you have the technical portion of it, which is like making sure you're doing everything correctly from a technical perspective. And then the second is the processes and then what's like called IM, which is like identity and access management, where you should know who has the authorization to do what, and it should be possible to revoke it. Uh, too often you see, you know, like the whole dev team have the access to do whatever 
in whatever environment. And you don't know, you know, if a dev is careless with that information, uh, they're using a personal computer, they leave to go to a different job. You should have everything in place where you can, you know, track who has access to what and be able to revoke it. Right. And again, like to the point about the person, an employee leaving, again, a lot of the stuff might not be malicious. It might just be an absence of consideration. So having some kind of system in place for that is super important. And of course, disaster recovery, like your database goes down and gets corrupted. Like what happens? Yeah, you don't want to suffer data loss. But in the event that you do, you should be able to restore it to some reasonable state. And in the event some for some reason that you can't, that's where then you can rely on the logging and auditing. Like in their scenario, it's pretty alarming because it looks like they can't get their transactions out of like from anywhere without actually essentially rerunning the app and doing their debugging on a live app. Right. And that just sounds scary as a crypto exchange. That's bad. And I'm not, I don't mean this to say like, oh, we're so great or anything like that. But, you know, we do regular backups for our alerts because we have 2000 alerts come in every day over the course of a month. You know, I have 50, 60,000 alerts coming in. If our database went down like for a day, we need to have have regular backups of that data. We don't yeah. want our users to not have access to alerts for like a 24 hour period, even though the application's running. Right. So a lot of basic stuff. Yeah. And I, I would say going back to your original point, like we discussed a lot of these things, not possible to know from the outside whether or not like Zaif was following a lot of best practices. But seeing things like test data in production is sort of the, I don't know if the canary in the coal mine is the right analogy, but it, it sort of gives us an inkling that maybe things are not all right with their processes. Yeah, it's a red flag. And I think I tweeted this out earlier, but I was like, look, if you put test data in your production API, I'm just not going to use your exchange. I think like it's just bad data. Sloppy. Hygiene. It's, it's just sloppy. sloppy. Yeah. There's this other thing that we wanted to talk about a little bit. So Cloudflare, uh, it's a CDN. They just announced that they're supporting a IPFS through a web gateway. So I thought this would be interesting to talk about, Faison. Yeah, so there's there's a number of topics here to break down. So the first piece is I'll just give a very basic summary of IPFS. Obviously, there's some really good videos and articles that we can add to the show notes for you guys to dive in more deeply. But uh, IPFS stands for uh, Interplanetary File System, which is a very uh, grandiose name, uh, but we'll break down what that means. So the idea with IPFS is that Rather than asking for, give me all of the data at this location, you actually say, like, give me the, you request content by its hash. So let's say I have an article, I can hash that article. And uh, with that hash, I can say, give me the article that corresponds to this hash. So quick question to step back for a second. So why would you want to do it this way? There's a number of reasons. So the, the idea here is that Rather than having a centralized, like a server client model where you ask the server for the data and essentially they can give you back whatever because you don't know what you're asking for. You're actually just saying, give me what's at this location. So you are trusting the server. You're also relying on that the server is going to be there. It hasn't gone down. You're trusting that what they are giving you has not been tampered with. So essentially, like IPFS solves a couple of problems. It's a distributed system, so it gives you the redundancy and resilience of that. Because you're requesting content by hash, it's inherently tamper-proof because you're saying, give me the content that hashes to this. So someone can't give you something tampered because the hash is not going to be like that. 
So just to give you an example of like, why would I use IPFS over just serving something over a server? Let's say you have a distributed app like CryptoKitties. You have the data for the kitties on the Ethereum blockchain, but obviously storing things directly on chain is very expensive. And you would want somewhere to be able to put the artwork and the assets of the site and things like that, like the site itself, you know, that CryptoKitties is hosted on. So you could essentially put those on IPFS and now your app is fully distributed. You're not relying on a central server, rather on a series of nodes that are serving your content. So just to understand this better, are the hash, right? Does the file that you that is corresponding with the hash one-to-one or is it broken up across hashes? So the the hash is not a file, it's a block of data. So a file could be multiple blocks of data. The way a, an arbitrarily large, like let's say file or application or you know repository would be stored is uh, by this data structure called a, it's basically a Merkle directed acyclic graph. So there's two parts of that. One is the Merkle piece and the other is a directed acyclic graph. So the idea is, let's say that I have a file that has four blocks of data, right? Yep. And I don't know that I need to request those four blocks and then that they turn into this file. Okay. So I can request the file and then the system will basically, like, then I can get back the blocks. And the way it works with this Merkle is that I can easily verify that these four blocks are what make up that file because the file has a hash but each of those blocks has a hash. Like, let's say I have four blocks. So the first block would have a hash, second block would have a hash, and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. And so think of those as leaves of a tree. And so the first two blocks, their hashes have another hash. And similarly for the third and fourth block. And then those hashes ultimately are the, the root hash. So you can sort of see how it forms the tree. Yep. And so this gives you two things, actually. So this gives you uh, integrity. So you know that like I can't swap out one of the blocks on you either, like... I know that the hash of a block has to return, like the content of that block has to hash down to the hash that I requested. But here, for some, requesting something that's compiled of uh, multiple blocks, it also provides uh, security. And a side effect is also that it essentially gives you a version control system. This Merkle DAG is the same data structure that Git uses. Like that's how Git actually manages your different versions. It's uh, immutable. It uses these uh, hash-based references. And basically, you're just putting it into a into like this global global system that multiple nodes are running for serving up files. Gotcha. And you're breaking up the uh, file, I assume, because of size, like you're limited to size of um, Yeah, yeah. So I'll, I'll, I'll post some stuff about the like specific implementation details, yep. but the idea is that, you know, any, it's just an arbitrary chunk of data that can compose into larger chunks of data. So yep. those could be files or videos or images or w- what have you. That sounds pretty badass. Yeah. So, you know, just to give you a real world example of something like, you know, something that's out there that's similar in terms of a problem it solves is, you know, we know like Netflix uses something like 30% of the bandwidth in the United States, I believe. It's in that order of magnitude. Yep. So obviously when we're all streaming Netflix, it's not all coming from like one server somewhere. Like if I'm in India and you're in New Mexico and like that would be very impractical. So what Netflix actually does is they cache their most popular content directly at the physical location where the ISPs are all over the world. So when you request certain things, like in my region, I'm maybe more likely to watch something to do with cars. I'll fetch that show 
from potentially my closest node. So, you know, this basically gives us the idea of like a distributed system that's somewhat resilient and also more performant because individual nodes can go down. In fact, parts of the internet can go down and you'll probably might still be able to stream your Netflix. And then another, another example, just to lay some groundwork is, I think we talked about uh, the way a traditional internet would work. So if I type in quantlayer.com, we get taken to our landing page. So like what's happening there? So the first thing is there's something called DNS. And basically what that does is it maps the like quantlayer.com to the location of our server. And again, this is a semi-centralized process. There's multiple uh, DN- like you know name servers, but they are all like central organizations. Cloudflare is one, Google provides it. There's a number, but it's a somewhat centralized system. Yep. So I use DNS, I find out where I want to get the information, and then our server just gives me back like whatever they want. Like we can change our site every day and you can go to Quantlayer and you'll see something different. So that can be a good thing or a bad thing. It's a bad thing if that's happening because someone's like tampering with it or someone has somehow intercepted our traffic and is sending you a fake site. It's a good thing because it by having that uh, that address, I know like this is where Quantlayer.com is. I'm not saying give me some specific image on their website. How would I know to get that? So... That brings us to one problem with IPFS, which is like, let's say a very simple website, just HTML, CSS, a couple of images. How do I know where to go get them? So this brings us to uh, IPNS. What IPNS is, is it's a hash that's a mutable reference to another hash. So what I can do is I can take my quantlayer.com domain, point the DNS settings to the URL for this hash. And then I can basically constantly update what actual content that hash points to. So, you know, if we deploy a new quant layer site, it's going to have a different hash. Then if we deploy another one, it's going to have a different hash. And so rather than constantly uh, changing our DNS settings, which is not not practical, we can just swap out our IPNS. So this essentially solves that issue of IPFS hashes being immutable, but you still wanting some sort of immutable reference that you can connect to your DNS. And then, you know, I I sort of went down a tangent with how you fetch data and use DNS, but just to jump back a step, where is this data stored? Like we've talked about, there's no servers anywhere uh, or there's no central server, like there's no central server. Yep. There's different nodes. So how are you getting this data from these nodes? So basically what happens is these nodes have these distributed hash tables. That was the, some of the stuff that we talked about earlier. And so basically what will happen is when I query, when I ask for a specific piece of content by hash, it gets looked up on this distributed hash table. Now the distributed hash table has the key is the content that I requested. And the value is one of two things. It's going to be either the content itself, if it's very small and it actually makes sense to put it on the hash table itself. Mm-hmm. Or it's going to be a list of the nodes that I can actually get the data from. So basically, if I would say I want this, you know, the content of that has this hash, I go look it up on a distributed hash table, and then I know which nodes I can fetch the data from. Yep. A very, you know, again, a version of this was uh, BitTorrent, where you were connected to all of your peers and you would fetch data by blocks, and then you would compose all those blocks up at the end. So that you know, that's an example of a similar system. And then 
people always say like, well, why interplanetary? And, you know, if you think about it, if you had a server-based system and you're on Mars, if you're trying to access quantlayer.com, there's unfortunately going to be a lot of latency. Uh, you're going to get alerts. I, I haven't checked the speed of light, how long it takes to get to Mars, but, you know, you're, you're going to be a little bit behind on getting alerts. Yeah. And your, your trading is going to suffer. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, if, if you're on Mars and you're trading a, a Earth-based product, you're, you're at a disadvantage. The nice thing about IPFS is like if we if we talk about that, you know, Netflix example of where I was able to stream my car show from my local server in India, it's that same idea where if we're publishing some of this stuff into IPFS, a lot of this content could get cached on Mars. So you don't have to go to our server directly. And a couple of things to add in terms of like, why would you use IPS? OK, we talked about it, it's distributed and redundant, but you could argue so is the CDN, like you can just go use a proprietary CDN and you get some benefits. One big item is also like that people really like about uh, IPFS is the idea of censorship resistance. So because it's not controlled by any central authority and you have all these distributed nodes, and in fact, it doesn't actually matter how the nodes communicate. So even if the internet goes down, as long as you have some sort of other overlay network, you can still bypass uh, various censorship and uh, serve up content. So that's a pretty big deal. Yep. So uh, coming back to Cloudflare. What, one question so, One question before sure. Cloudflare. So uh, certainly certain types of data are probably better suited for this than others. Like I imagine like video on this would just be a non-starter, right? I don't know off the top of my head how much, like if you remember from back in the day when you would torrent legal things like Ubuntu, the more people that were like seeding the content, like so essentially the more nodes there were, the faster things would download. So it's a similar idea. So it's not necessarily that video won't work. It really depends on the strength of the network. So if you push something up and it does not get distributed uh, widely, because then it may be slower initially, but if it becomes something that's uh, heavily used and uh, distributed by a lot of uh, nodes, then it can be relatively performant as well. Okay. And just understanding the distribution part a little better, just trying to visualize it. So when you say upload, say just I'm just uploading a file to IPFS. Yeah. And I want to share that file with you. Do mm -hmm. I just give you a hash of its contents? You could. Okay. Yeah. If you, if you know the hash of the content, then that's uh, how you would do it. If you look at something like how a torrent file would work, it basically knows all of the blocks of data that it needs. And then it goes and finds them and then it okay. composes it in, back into like the, you know, the Ubuntu distribution at the end. Yep. Because I'm just picturing like we talked about censorship resistance and yeah. there was this whole story from a few months ago where someone in China was writing about how terrible their work conditions were and they encoded that into the Ethereum blockchain. Yeah. And then you just needed access to the public, uh, basically the transaction hash of the Ethereum blockchain for that to, and then to, to just read that note. So I'm just wondering, like, if people wanted to, to use this for something like that to write like public letters, open letters, and yeah, then have is, that shared with it's people. Fundamentally the same thing because you have this hash based structure that's distributed that you're putting data, writing data on in an immutable fashion. So fundamentally you're solving the same problem, but IPFS is just much more economical because it's expensive to write contracts onto Ethereum. So if you're using it for as a data store, it's it's not not the best way. 
Right. So you, you, you may use it to store references to like, you know, that's coming back to that distributed hash table we talked about. We don't store all of the content on the DHT. We just store, if the content's very small, we put it there. But if it's large, we store references to all of the places where the content is. So we can go get it. And hopefully that's multiple sources. So it's censorship resistant and whatnot. Got it. So what is Cloudflare up to here? Okay, so Cloudflare, just to give you, you know, they do a lot of stuff. So I'm not going to cover uh, all of their stuff. But three things that they're known for is they have a, a CDN service. That's a content delivery network, which I alluded to earlier. They help, I think they provide uh, DDoS, which is distributed denial of service protection. So basically, if like, you know, let's say we have our single quant layer server and some botnet decides it's going to send like a million requests. Well, let's say a billion requests because I think we handle a lot. So let's say that you want to send a billion requests to try and take us down. Cloudflare would essentially intercept and redirect that traffic so that our site doesn't go down. So they like basically block the malicious traffic and let the good guys through. And they also are a DNS provider. So they will run name servers that do that name resolution. And so basically they have, if you need like security or uh, some sort of performant manner of serving content over the web, they have some sort of product to help. So, you know, this CDN being the performance side of things, the DOS protection being the security side of things. So they just have a suite of products in that general domain. Yeah. And, you know, you in theory, you don't need Cloudflare. You can interact with IPFS directly. But what Cloudflare does is, from just like a developer and DevOps perspective is if you don't need to run your own node, but you still want to be able to fetch files from IPFS, uh, they give you this gateway, which is effectively an API that lets you fetch data by hash. So I don't remember the exact URL, but let's say we had a gateway. It would be, you know, quant layer slash IPFS slash hash. And if you went there, you'd get back the file. So Cloudflare essentially lets you just make an HTTP request to get back data that's on IPFS. Yep. And this is a big deal. Obviously, like having more nodes in the system is good, but also making it very easy to uh, fetch IPFS data is an important step in increasing adoption because you're just making it easy from a development and DevOps perspective. And what also makes it nice is because of HTTP gateway, you can point your regular uh, DNS directly to the content as well. So if we put an image on IPFS and we have like our normal website, we can just reference that IPFS URL in one of our image tags. So that's pretty slick. Yeah. So yeah, that's sort of all I had on, on that topic. We'll post some links. It's definitely an interesting technical space and what one thing we'll post their press release because it's pretty good right it walks through ipfs how it's used i think they list like there's billions of and billions of files that have been there's five billion files that have already been uploaded to ipfs i know what's going to be on the mind of regulators when they hear about this technology um so there's a section called like dealing with abuse so basically, they're saying like IPFS is a peer-to-peer network, so there's the possibility of users sharing abusive content. This is not something we support or condone. And then they say if there's any abusive content that's found, you can report it here. So I don't know how this will be handled with, but it is certainly an important concern. Yeah, and another thing to keep in mind is also with the EU privacy laws, like the right to be forgotten or whatever, like stuff you put into IPFS is immutable. And so, like, you can't go back and delete stuff. So it's just something to keep in mind. Yeah, it will be an interesting future ahead. So 
Yeah, we also wanted to go over uh, some interesting alerts that came through the dashboard this past week. Yeah, one that we had pointed out earlier, I just thought I'd re-mention it, is uh, there's this company called LivePeer and they have this library called MerkleMine and we're seeing some contract again that's using over 20% of the Ethereum network. Now, the library is open source, so maybe it's LivePeer. Uh, there's some video streaming service. Maybe it's them using it or someone else, but over 20% of the usage by a single contract is pretty pretty severe. Yeah, and if that happens over a couple of contracts, like right now I'm just looking at our dashboard, so there's an address using 5%, another address using 6%, and an address using 21%. So over 30% of the network is being used right now. Yeah. I mean, if they're using it to stream video, maybe they should think about putting some of that on IPFS. Yeah. Another one that came through, and this one caught my attention because of the title, Scam Alert. BetVibe makes false claims about core team members. Okay. <laughs> so that's what was just in the feed. Like I did, And then I clicked and I got the summary and the summary was pretty, pretty good as well. So basically this uh, company, BetVibe, is just saying stuff that is not true about their core team, which is like, it's pretty alarming. They have people on their site that don't have any references to BetVibe on their like LinkedIn profile or anything like that. And so, you know, just seeing something like Scam Alert, and being notified to be aware of this coin is useful. But then, you know, I followed up on like, who actually put this out there? And it's this team working on something called uh, Metacert. So I'll just read what they say they do. Metacert protocol is decentralizing cybersecurity for the internet by defining ownership and URL classification information about domain names, applications, bots, crypto wallet addresses, social media accounts, and APIs. The protocol's registry can be used by ISPs, routers, Wi-Fi hotspots, crypto wallets, and exchanges, mobile devices, browsers, and apps to help address cyber threats such as phishing, malware, brand protection, child safety, and news credibility. Think of MetaCert protocol as the modern version of the outdated browser padlock and who is database combined. So that's pretty neat. Basically, they just scan all of this stuff and they're generating a whitelist of stuff to block that's uh, like scammy or shady yeah that's really cool i'm just looking at the uh the team page so did they just pick random people and put them as uh as team members uh so i don't know if that's what they did yeah but that brings us to our next alert which came through which again had scam in the title and whenever i see that i get excited so basically this uh t key coin just had a fake team on their page. It was just a bunch of stock photos. <laughs> I'm just so, looking at it right now. It's just a, a bunch, yeah, a bunch of stock photos. Like, imagine there's the fakest thing that you could like come up with. Like, why is this guy holding in an apron holding a bunch of muffins? <laughs> Maybe this is a this joke. This guy has a, a colorful bow tie. Like, it's imagine just picking a random selection of stock photos and throwing them on a uh, crypto page. There's a guy it's, holding a rose. Yeah. And it's, it's like, it's not one of those like goofy tech sites where people have their hobbies in the photo. It's really yeah. just as a bunch of random stock images. So I thought that was pretty funny. So it's nice to see like scams getting caught and being pushed through and just like showing up with that right in the title. So you, you see it real quick. Yeah. And then I love looking through the GitHub stuff as well. Yep. So there's something called the ALF project. The PR was called Transaction Lost Bug Fix. So, you know, I didn't do a super deep dive into it, but basically 
they pushed up some code that was fixing timeouts that were happening and also transactions getting lost. So again, if that's a coin you've invested in or interested in, that's something you'd want to follow up on. Like, hey, are these lost transactions on something that's not live or is live and why is it happening and what is this fix are some questions that would come immediately to mind. Yeah, the GitHub alerts are really interesting because you can search, you just search for some common keywords like bug fix, bug or fix or transaction even. And there's a lot of stuff that comes up. And so again, like we mentioned it before, like you don't have to actually be a developer to get some value out of the GitHub commits. Some of the alerts that we we end up surfacing like they have titles, like like the one that Faison was just talking about, transaction lost bug fix. Like you don't need to be a developer to know like, oh, there's something wrong with transactions. It raises some important questions that you need to have answered. Yeah. At the very least. Yeah. So there's a ton of cool uh, alerts that come through. And I think the GitHub ones and I think the Telegram chat ones are probably my favorite in terms of like interesting information that comes out of them. Yeah, because it just, it just raises so many questions about that specific project. Yeah. Another one that came through, this one I just got me because it's the big number. Bitcoin hedge fund records 10,000% returns. Okay. <laughs> so, you know, this is interesting, A, because just 10,000% returns. Oh, wow. But, you know, we've seen early buyers of Bitcoin with those kinds of returns and much greater. That's not anything surprising. And we've also seen a lot of uh, hedge funds pop up like last year when the price rallied. But what's interesting about uh, these guys is they've been in operation since 2013. I think they they spun up when Bitcoin was around $125. So that basically explains a lot of their returns, but they have not just hodled Bitcoin. They've actually traded into a, a number of vaults as well. Right. This is Pantera Capital. Is that, Pantera yeah. Capital. That's right. Yeah. 2013 seems like it's ages ago in this space. Yeah. I mean, I I remember 2013 because that's when like, I think late 2013, early 2014, there were some spikes and I just remember a few people that I knew the hell Bitcoin were like constantly checking it, yeah. constantly checking it. <laughs> yeah, 2013, 2014 is like there was the, I think it went from like 100 to 300 to 1,000 in a very short yeah. period. It like touched 1,200 and then went yeah. back below 1,000 and didn't come back for a long time. For like years, for like two years almost. Yeah. Yeah, went back from, went from 1,000 to like around 200, maybe a little below that before it started picking up again over the last year or so or more than the last year. Yeah. And then uh, look, going into the next alert. Um, Actually, like, I always like uh, looking- before we get into that alert, it does bring into interesting topic around this concept of like when people want to call a bottom. And why do you think people do that? Why do you think people feel the need to say, OK, Bitcoin's hit its bottom? I think that there's some subset of people that have to have definitive answers to something and they will would rather come up with a strategy for getting them an answer that they're like happy with than just not having it. Like, honestly, I think that's what drives a lot of technical traders. Yeah. Like people need to have some range or number that they can get to based on something. Yeah. And I, I, I think that's all it is. Like historically, I have never met anyone who's been able to successfully call like, a bottom on a regular basis. Like calling a bottom is saying, you know, something goes from like a hundred to five and you're saying, oh, five is the bottom. And then it, it never ever goes below five again. For someone to be able to do that on a regular basis, that's like clairvoyance. It's just, you just can't do it. And in crypto, you see it so often where like 
it's just there's, there's a steady stream of in my mind garbage articles that j- all they do is say someone predicted a thing yeah back in 2014 they predicted a thing and they were right or back in 2014 they predicted a thing that was wrong and it's just a steady stream of articles yeah. from the cnbc and the like yeah don't i mean investing in something or trading on something just because somebody was right one time like three years ago is not a good strategy like i've heard this before like oh john paulson he called the housing crisis and he made a billion dollars or something like that and then he lost a bunch of money like two years later so like you can be again all this stuff is the best traders and the best portfolio managers are not necessarily right even 50 percent of the time they can be right like 20% of the time. And it's just math. Like if you're right 20% of the time, but your payoff is 100x and you're wrong the rest of the time, meaning you like lose all your capital. I'm just giving an explanation from like the uh, the option side. You still have made a ton of profit. So if you ever hear like a portfolio manager, and we've talked this before on a few other podcasts, but like a portfolio manager comes on and says, oh yeah, this is the bottom. They're doing that not because it's, the bottom necessarily, but in the chance that they're right in two years, they're going to have like a ton of money come their way that wants to invest with them. And I think like media just likes, likes it too, because it drives a lot of traffic. Like, Oh, uh, you know, Paulson said this, now he's saying this, like people are going to read it. I know I I will read it too. John McAfee. Right. Yeah. (laughs) So, you know, we've talked a lot about like the financial stuff, but I'm always interested in the non-financial uses of blockchains. Like we've talked about identity before, fraud protection, like anti-corruption. So a big problem is counterfeit drugs. I think one report I read said 700,000 people die every year from counterfeit drugs. And when I say drugs, I mean like pharmaceuticals. Yeah. And I think 20% of that is in India. So counterfeit drugs are $5 billion market in India. That's huge. And so an alert we saw come through that basically India is going to put drugs and their supply chain on the blockchain. So in real time, you can validate whether something you have is counterfeit or not, Huh? which is pretty sweet. Because if you can see, like, you know, it's one thing to put a serial number on something, but someone could replicate that serial number. And how would you know whether it's been even produced yet or sold or consumed by putting that on the blockchain as it passes through the... uh, the different steps, you could very quickly look up like, hey, oh, this serial number has already been sold. So what I have must be fake. Yep. So that's a pretty cool uh, real world use. So it says the Indian government has already hired Oracle in order to create a pilot project involving the blockchain technology. So I imagine like Oracle is probably selling this kind of um, product pretty heavily for this I kind think of stuff. They, yeah, I assume all the big enterprise services companies are... I, I see those ads for IBM blockchain yeah. where they're like tracking coffee. Right. Well, one other item. I know we talk about Elon Musk and Tesla a lot. I have some non-Tesla related uh, Elon news. So anyone that follows him on Twitter, you see like he, there's crazy amounts of like Ethereum crypto scam bot activity where there's like these Ethereum giveaways. So uh, he just tweeted at the founder of Dogecoin like, hey, can you help me with this? And I guess that guy wrote a script to help clean it up and and it's it's helped with uh, filtering out some of these scam bots. Nice. So it'll be good to see some of that stuff get mainstreamed back in, you know, so that maybe Twitter can take some action against that sort of thing. Hey, everyone, this is Vikram again. Thanks for listening to us. If you are an exchange, a trader or working on a crypto project, get in touch with us. 
You can reach us on Twitter at Quantlayer, that's Q-U-A-N-T-L-A-Y-E-R, or email me at Vikram at Quantlayer.com, that's V-I-K-R-A-M, like Monero, at Quantlayer.com. I will write back. And if you like our podcast so far, please hit subscribe and rate and review us, because that would help us a lot. Thanks. Thanks.